1: for details, that's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash
0: back really adds up. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. Uh, it's absolutely the case uh, that the capacity
2: for uh, ISIS and other radical Islamic terror groups, Sunni terror groups, uh, remains. Um, but this challenge, this challenge of taking down these networks, uh something the United States is going to have to continue to stay right on top
1: of for for a long time
2: for a long time for
1: decades generations
2: yeah. iran is important in the, it's as it turns out to be central to our middle east yeah. policy our desire to reduce violence and create stability in the broader Middle East context, and it turns out as you uh, peel back the challenge today in Lebanon from Hezbollah, you peel back the challenge in Yemen from the Houthis, you look at the risk that Iraq won't be able to stand up and have an independent sovereign nation, Uh, Those often emanate from the Islamic Republic of Iran.
1: At the end of the day, do you think they're capable of changing this regime? No,
2: the individuals in this government aren't, and what we're trying to do is create space for the Iranian people. This is a country, you know this, Mike, this is a country with education, a real diversity in their economy, it has a deep cultural history. There's real opportunity They in could this have space. a the future. They, could, they, I mean, they truly could, and the vast majority of the Iranian people, we are convinced, would prefer that, and we're trying to help them get in that right place. We've been down this road a number of times with the north koreans each time the mistake that the united states made was uh we handed them a bunch of money in exchange for too little and we're determined not to make that mistake i think the north koreans now see that pretty clearly
1: do you see a path to a deal that gets to full denuclearization
2: i do i absolutely do ultimately this turns uh not on the details of that deal well, there's lots of room to work our way there. Uh, it's holding it returns on whether Chairman Kim makes the fundamental strategic decision, the one that he's told me half a dozen times he has made, the he's told the president a handful of times that he has made. Well, only time will tell for sure, but I've, I've seen enough to believe that there is a real opportunity to fundamentally shift the strategic paradigm on the peninsula there.
1: Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is our nation's foreign policy leader. He was sworn into office on April 26, 2018. He previously served as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Prior to joining the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo was serving his fourth term as the representative of Kansas' fourth congressional district. While in Congress, Secretary Pompeo served on the House Intelligence Committee. Secretary Pompeo served in the U.S. Army, and he graduated first in his class at the United States Military Academy at West Point. I just had the chance to sit down with Secretary Pompeo at the State Department for our one-year anniversary show. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon. Making the world a safer place. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Mike, it's great, it to is be with you. great to have you on the show, and it's particularly great to have you on the show for our one year anniversary.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you.
1: Thanks. We also just passed your one year anniversary here at State Department, April 26th. So, congratulations on that. And just for a little foreshadowing, I want to ask you a question at the end about your one year anniversary. But maybe the place to start, Mr. Secretary, is, since this is Intelligence Matters with intelligence, what's your battle rhythm like with regard to your consumption of intelligence? What does your kind of average day look like in terms of consuming intelligence?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. You know, it's changed a little bit since my previous role at CIA. Uh, I still, I get my material uh, early in the morning uh, just about every day.
1: you get it in the car. And
2: then... I, I get it. I get in the vehicle on my way in, or if I'm traveling, I'll go to the skiff space there. Uh, sometimes I'll finish up the reading, depending on how much material there is For that, I'll finish up the reading while I'm here. I have a, a trained professional who's there with me to assist. Where I have questions, things I want to inquire about further, or frankly, things that I see and don't make sense to me, to try and make sure I, I really can understand. Is this what's, somebody from what's the intelligence written, community? Somebody from the intelligence community who uh, who assists me. Uh, So I both have a a set of readings and a briefer who assists me in in, uh, absorbing the information. And then as you know, my things develop during the day as well. Mm -hmm. So I will often be passed information during the day, Uh, short pieces more often, things that have developed that are either uh, events of the day or often uh, intelligence that has come in on things that had occurred previously, but we just now have in a developed form that is about a meeting that I'm about to take Mm -hmm. place. So if I'm meeting with a foreign leader. And there's information related to that. That information comes to me uh, midday as well. And then I usually take home uh, more in-depth pieces in the Mm -hmm. evening to spend some time reading in my... Uh, secure space in my home.
1: One of the things our listeners may not know is that people at your level get to ask questions (laughs) and they get those questions answered usually in 24 hours. So are you a tasker?
2: I am and it's a blessing and the intelligence community is phenomenal in doing that. And I I do my best not to burden them unduly uh, but uh, there's things you want to know. There's things that are very relevant to conversations you're going to have around the world and to be able to get that information turned that quickly, that accurately even if in a rough format is of enormous value.
1: Mr. Secretary, as you know, there's, there's critiques out there about the president as an intelligence consumer. And you were with him every morning when you were CIA director when he got his PDB briefing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're with him now in policy meetings when he gets that intelligence. Could you describe him as an intelligence consumer?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I've, I've said this before. Uh, he is uh, religious about taking these briefings. That is, they uh, in my time as CIA director, I can count on, a, on one hand the number of times those meetings were canceled. So it was a true battle rhythm. It was that time was honored. That's difficult for a chief executive who has lots of things coming up in, uh, on his uh, agenda. So the first thing, I think, was the rigorousness with which uh, we had access to be able to provide him timely information. Uh, we then had a, a trained professional uh, who was the primary briefer, but in those were uh, senior leaders from all across the USG. It was a small group, four or five of us. Uh, who were there during the president's briefing as well, uh, both to listen to the things he was hearing, so we made sure we had his, although we'd often seen that information ourselves that same morning, uh, uh, but also to be able to help answer and frame any questions that came up. So as the CIA director, I could talk to him about things that we were doing to help flesh out further information for him. Uh, uh, He listened. He asked lots of questions. Uh, I've, I've talked about this before. Uh, he was often very focused on economic issues as they related, so there would be good national security policy, who's got the weapons, um, what, what is a particular l- government leadership thinking. But he would also ask, how can we use uh, America's capacity, America's economic capacity to help shape the situation to get good
1: outcomes for the United States? Mr. Secretary, the attack in Sri Lanka, obviously horrible. You know, one of the five worst attacks outside a war zone since 9-11 in terms of deaths and injuries obviously horrible in terms of the targets that were attacked, churches and hotels, you know, the softest of targets. As you know, ISIS has claimed responsibility. Do we have any insight yet to whether that was directed or inspired, or are we still working through that?
2: Well, Mike, you, you've lived these, these incidents before. They're, it's worthy to uh, measure twice and cut once in your analysis in the immediate right. aftermath. Uh, I will say that every indication is that this was at the very least inspired by ISIS. Uh, and I think we'll have more information develops about whether there were any actual connections. The scale, the complexity of the attack certainly would be something a good analyst like yourself would stare at and say, we need to dig really hard. The capacity for a local group to pull off a relatively complex simultaneous attack, um, it could happen, um, but it's probably the case that there were others assisting them.
1: The destruction of the caliphate was an important and significant success But what does this tell us about ISIS's capabilities post-Caliphate? Yeah.
2: Well, again, we don't know exactly the connection to ISIS. um, But it is fair to say, even even apart from the Sri Lanka incident, uh, it's absolutely the case uh, that the capacity for uh, ISIS and other uh, radical Islamic terror groups, Sunni terror groups, uh, remains. Uh, Their ability to network, we have al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula that still has real... Um, real capacity to put the United States at risk through its expertise. Uh, there are lots of pockets we could walk through. Um, but this challenge, this challenge of taking down these networks uh, is something the United States is going to have to continue to stay right on top of.
1: For, for a long time. For a long time. For decades, generations.
2: Yes. Um, a- almost certainly the case that the, they show no sign of ideologically having wavered from their desire to uh, conduct attacks on the West. And that means we're going to have to be vigilant for an awfully long time.
1: So, Mr. Secretary, let's stay on terrorism for a second, but shift to Afghanistan and Syria. So as someone who worked counterterrorism issues for 15 years, I'm concerned that not having a physical presence in those places is going to increase the opportunity for al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and ISIS in Syria to reappear. There's a lot of confusion out there about what our policy is going to be with regard to continued presence in Afghanistan, continued presence in Syria. Can you give us a sense of where your thinking is on that, where the administration's thinking is? Sure,
2: I certainly can. So we will start with the mission set, right? The mission set, the president's been unambiguous about whether it is Afghanistan or Syria. The mission set is very clear. Uh, We're not going to allow them to get the caliphate back in either western Iraq or eastern Syria. Uh, We're going to continue to apply pressure uh, to the networks, uh, wherever we find them, whether that's Southeast Asia, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, all of the places that we could, we could run through. Uh, what that will mean for force posture, what that will mean about what our footprint looks like, that uh, will be based on what we believe is the most effective way to get the outcome that we described. And so there's there's an inordinate amount of focus on how many Department of Defense uniform personnel are on the ground. I think it's important is to take the step back and say, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve now? The various tools that we have, uh, certainly intelligence tools that we have, uh, uh, the capacity to work with partner countries in those regions to use use friends uh, to assist us in getting the outcome we want. We've been training Afghan security forces. We worked with the SDF in Syria. We will – every situation will turn out to be different. uh, And we will – the President's commitment – we will have the right structure, the right System uh, to push back. And they'll be different in different places because the threat will appear and manifest itself differently and they'll change over time. So when you hear the President, and this is important, when you hear the President talk about Afghanistan, we understand the threat and the risk. Uh, But the question is now a decade and a half on end, do we have the right posture, broadly speaking, there? And if not, can we get to that right place, and if that right place looks like a significant smaller footprint for the United States of America, we are determined to do it, to put less of our young men and women at risk. So the president talks about these endless wars ending. I think that's the right approach. Uh, the counterterrorism mission
1: remains. Yeah. So I thought one of, the, one of the most effective ways to deal with this problem was having partners do it for us, right? right? Because then we're not the ones doing it, right? And uh, that's really important.
2: I talked about that, Dan, when I asked the last question. We have to have partners, we have to have friends, we have to have allies. Uh, we certainly see this uh, on the intelligence side. Uh, we use uh, really capable partners and share intelligence to get good, real-time information. And then for the actual effort, the disruption of the networks, uh, as you well know, we have partners all around the world uh, doing this. It's one of the things that you stare at in Sri Lanka and say, wholly apart from intelligence failures that may or may not have taken place, how was the network not good enough, the information sharing network not good enough there in Colombo and the surrounding regions uh, to identify this threat in a timely fashion to allow interdiction? We have lots of successes, uh, as you well know, Mike, uh, almost every week, uh, but these failures are unacceptable and we can't simply say this is business as usual. We have to
1: continue to work the system. Let's pivot to Iran, which is obviously a big focus of the president and a big focus of yours. Why is it so important?
2: So Iran is important, and it's as it turns out to be central to our Middle East policy, our desire to reduce violence and create stability in the broader Middle East context. So when you look at President Trump's strategy in the Middle East, uh, it is how do you reduce terror risk? Uh, Who are the folks with the resources and money? And it turns out as you, uh, you peel back... Uh, You peel back the challenge today in Lebanon from Hezbollah. You peel back the challenge in Yemen from the Houthis. You look at the risk that Iraq won't be able to stand up and have an independent, sovereign nation. uh, Those often emanate from the Islamic Republic of Iran. So that's how we arrive at Iran as a central pillar of our Middle East efforts. Uh, There are lots of pieces to the effort there. Some of them are Iran-specific. Some of them are broader but make no mistake about it, we do see the Islamic Republic of Iran as
1: uh, central to the instability we see in the Middle East today. So your strategy is to force them back to the negotiating table to get a better nuclear deal and to get them to stop messing around in the region, That's right.
2: right. That's right. Not just the nuclear deal. Both. uh, To get them to behave like a normal nation is the best way to characterize it. And you're
1: increasing the pressure by doing away with the handful of oil waivers that were out there. You're increasing the pressure by designating the IRGC. Just one question on that. So, so when I was at the agency, it was the Kuds Force, right? Part of the uh, the IRGC that was the organization that committed terrorism. What was the logic of designating the whole group?
2: So it's still true. It is the Kuds Force that is their expeditionary force, the, truly driving, uh, truly driving the terror element of the Islamic Republic of Iran's campaign around the world, underwriting Hezbollah, working with the Houthis in Yemen. It is the Kuds Force that is most central to that. They work at the direction of the IRGC leadership. And then the second piece of this is the IRGC is also uh, uh, it's a mafia family. Yeah. They also are, own roughly 20 percent of the Iranian economy. So there's an, an, the IRGC has penetrated the construction industry, the tra- big pieces of the Iranian economy. And so this designation permits us to go after those places where there is real wealth creation opportunity that ultimately gets to the goods force and... Uh, our, our mission set is very clear. If yeah. we can reduce the capacity of the Quds force to spend, pick a number, $700 million to a billion dollars a year on Hezbollah, if we can take down that capacity, they won't be able to pay salaries. It will be more difficult for them to
1: uh, generate external terror. The designation gives you real leverage. It does. So the Iranian strategy, to me at least, you know, maybe the, the analysts at CIA have a different view, but the Iranian strategy to me seems to be wait you out, right? Hope that 2020 gives them a different president who's going to rejoin the nuclear deal. Is that your sense? And if that's what they're doing, how can we put even more pressure on them?
2: So um, my, my sense of the uh, Iranian strategy is to uh, develop a resistance economy. I, I think it's probably the case. They wish these policies were different, and they probably are looking for the moment when there'll be new leadership in the United States, and perhaps the United States' policies will change. I actually think that's a fool's errand. Um, My my view across a broad political spectrum inside the United States is there is a consistent view of the risk from the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's lots of debate about the JCPOA, but more broadly speaking, I think think everyone gets the terror risk. So I I think that's a bad strategy for them, but I suspect it's theirs. And I'm sure there are people whispering in their ears, just hang on until uh, there's an election in November of of 2020 in the United States, and perhaps your uh, fortunes will shift. Uh, our effort in this administration is to make sure that we lay down the right policy for our time on duty, our watch, and I'm convinced we're truly getting there. You can see it in the things that are happening inside of the Islamic Republic around. Iran, not only the economic distress, which, um, which has, is mixed. We want good success for the Iranian people, uh, but make no mistake about it, the, their capacity to distribute terror around the world is reduced from where it was even just 12 months ago. So,
1: so you know these guys? Right. And so at the end of the day, do you think they're capable of changing this regime?
2: No, the individuals in this government aren't. And uh, I know I hear lots of talk about moderates there. I just don't see it. It's
1: moderates in an Iranian context, right?
2: It's it's moderates who believe in the Islamic element of the republic. (laughs) And so once you've you've given up uh, on the capacity for democratic governance, and have turned this into – uh, an Islamic revolutionary state, I no longer put you in the moderate bucket. Uh, yeah, I think uh, what can change is the people can change the government. I don't, I, I don't see Rouhani changing, Zarif changing. I don't see Qasem Soleimani changing or the new leader of the IRGC. They are who they are. It's deeply imprinted. Um, I was with some of the individuals who were held in 1979 in the American embassy just a week before last. And they reminded me that many of the Iranian leaders today are the individuals who beat them. Uh, it's the same cast of characters. What we're trying to do is create space for the Iranian people. This is a country, you know this, Mike, this is a country with education, real diversity in their economy. It has a deep cultural history. There's real opportunity They in could this have space. a real future. They, could, they, they truly really could, and the vast majority of the Iranian people, we are convinced, would prefer that, and we're trying to help them get in that right place.
1: Okay. Let's switch to North Korea, Mr. Secretary. They say they don't like you. By the way, they don't like me either, and they don't like Intelligence Matters, um, I hear. Looks like maybe your counterpart just lost his job. But we learned after Hanoi where we stand, right? We put an offer on the table, and they said, not even close. And they put an offer on the table, and we said, not even close. We now see Kim Jong-un rattling the cage a little bit, being at this weapons test, whatever that weapons test was, now meeting with Vladimir Putin, Is that what you think he's doing with these things? Where do you think his head is at the moment? How do you think about that?
2: So we've been down this road a number of times with the North Koreans throughout history. You've been involved in some of them. Uh, The the pattern practice isn't terribly different this time. Uh, Having said that, each time the mistake that the United States made, in my view, and frankly the world, our partners who were alongside us in some of these discussions, was uh, we handed them a bunch of money in exchange for too little and we're determined not to make that mistake. I think the North Koreans now see that pretty clearly. Uh, we've had discussions. What happened in Hanoi was, was a information-gathering exercise for each of us. I think we each learned a, a great deal. There was lots of, of, of nuance that hasn't, frankly, been reported a whole lot uh, because we certainly aren't going to talk about it. But there was a lot more nuance to the conversation than uh, just, hey, they had a position, we had a position, we walked away. Mm-hmm. So there's, there, there's more there to that. Uh, We hope that we can build on that. That's for the personalization. Uh, From Mike Pompeo's perspective, that was a mid-level guy in the North Koreans. Uh, We're we're very focused on getting the right set of incentives uh, for both sides uh, so that we can uh, achieve the objective. It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be challenging. Uh, I hope that we get uh, several more chances to have serious conversations about how we can move this process forward.
1: So, so, so in those nuances in Hanoi and in your conversations since, do you see a path to a deal that gets to full denuclearization?
2: I do. I absolutely do. Uh, ultimately, this turns uh, not on the details of that deal, where there's lots of room to work our way there. Uh, it's told it ultimately turns on whether Chairman Kim makes the fundamental strategic decision the one that he's told me half a dozen times he has made, when he's told the president a handful of times that he has made. There are lots of elements of this. There, there, there are many pieces. It's, a, it's an enormous challenge for that country to make its shift, too. It has for an awfully long time told its people that those nuclear weapons were the thing that kept them secure they they now need to shift to the narrative, which is those are the things that put them at risk. Those are the things that cause the challenges for the country. So there's not just a military strategic decision, but a political strategic decision uh, that we think Chairman Kim is prepared to make. O- only time will tell for sure, but I- I've seen enough to believe that there is a real opportunity to fundamentally shift the strategic paradigm on the peninsula there.
1: And there's not some clock in the president's mind in terms of how long he's going to give this? Um, no,
2: we're... the. The president's made clear, we're going to have enough patience to make sure that we're really having good faith negotiations and real conversations. And if that breaks down, if that doesn't happen, then we'll have to obviously change paths. But our our mission set's very clear. Uh, State Department's in the lead trying to negotiate a solution here. We have great partners in South Korea, Japan, who've been great allies in having these conversations, too. And we appreciate all the work that they've done. It's in their backyard. It matters to them an awful yeah. lot, too, obviously.
1: Speaking of their backyard, China. Um, which is a huge issue, as you know. The consensus among national security experts is that China poses one of the biggest challenges that we've ever faced. Some say a bigger challenge than the Soviet Union at the end of the day. How do you see that? How do you think about that?
2: I I think it's absolutely the case that a country with uh, 1.5 billion people, uh, truly now technologically very, very capable, um, presents a real competitive challenge to the United States of America. We see it in many fronts. You watch the trade negotiations that are taking place. Uh, The good news is President Trump has been prepared to confront this in ways that previous presidents haven't. Perhaps the threat has changed, or perhaps our recognition of the threat has changed. But the president's been very clear uh, uh, with President Xi, with whom he has a great relationship. He's been very clear that the trade relationship needs to fundamentally shift, and that these other imbalances, whether it's uh, forced technology transfer, the theft of intellectual property, Challenges in the Ch- South China Sea. We're taking on the risk from technology. We are pushing back against their predatory lending practices all around the world. In every embassy, in the United States, they understand uh, uh, the threat that China poses. Not for competition. We're perfectly happy to compete with a Chinese company, have an American company go right. ahead and we'll win our fair share. We'll lose some, uh, but when they show up with uh, an entity that is truly just a shill for a Chinese government enterprise with. A deeply substantive financing and lending practices that will leave the people of that country in worse condition, we're prepared to call that out and help that country understand the risks it presents to them.
1: So when we faced the Soviet Union, we had a national strategy, right? The whole country was organized in a way to deal with that threat. Do we need that sort of same approach on China? Over the long term?
2: I think so. It's more complex than that. Uh, Russia, in that sense, or Soviet Union was hermetically sealed. We didn't have deep, important commercial relationships in the same way that we have today. There were some, but it was fundamentally different. Um, That poses a much more complex problem set for the United States. Our economies are deeply intertwined today. That's a good thing. In many respects, right, it's what the United States began in the early 70s to open up the economic relationship between the countries with the theory that the political situation would follow. That hasn't happened. Uh, and so we will continue to develop a strategy that is uh, broad and deep and confronts China at each of those places. And where there's room to cooperate, we will we will run down that road as yeah. well.
1: It seems to me that one of the really important assets we have here is our allies and partners as we try to deal with China, right? And we're asking a lot of them. Obviously, we need them in places, but we're asking, also asking a lot of them in terms of burden sharing, in terms of supporting sanctions that they don't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance that as the Secretary of State when you're having a conversation with them?
2: Yeah, you, you smile and shake hands on the things you agree on and then arm wrestle on those that you don't. Uh, and you you do so with the seriousness that you recognize their sovereign nation, they have their own interests uh, that we have ours you some places use simply agree to disagree, uh, and they provide friction there's a there's a rub there to be sure, um, but with our true friends, our European partners, those folks who've been around a long time, uh, these are deep, sophisticated relationships that are strong and endure past all of our. People think this is all new. You, you'll remember from your time, right, we've had big fights about Iraq with the Europeans. There's a long history of, of having friends and partners with whom you diverge on a particular issue set. Uh, so you lean in hard on those things you work on, and China's a perfect example. Uh, we've built out a, a big coalition with the ASEAN partners in Asia. Uh, the Europeans understand the risk from China. I think their acceptance of that is ever-increasing day by day. I think there's a global understanding that something has shifted in China. Um, over the last handful of years that um, has gone from a developing country to one now with a very different design. And um, I think as the world begins to absorb that, I think you'll see the coalitions begin to solidify and the capacity for what we care about, Western democratic values, free and open markets, the capacity to trade around the world, uh, security arrangements that provide security for all, freedom of navigation. Those things are the central pillars of our Western democracies. I think you'll see us unite and uh, begin to do the things we need to do to ensure that that value set uh, continues to dominate this century and the next.
1: MR. Secretary, last question. You've been terrific with your time. Thank you. Back to your one-year anniversary on this job. So you are the president's most senior representative to the rest of the world. travel to many countries. You have countless meetings with foreign officials. What have you learned about America's role in the world? And the reason I ask is there's a division here in the United States between those who think we should engage less in the world and those who think we should engage more in the world. What's your sense after a year as Secretary of State?
2: We're we're irreplaceable in the global firmament uh, for creating the central understandings of what uh, what ordered liberty throughout the world must look like. Uh, wherever I travel, Mike, it's, a, it's an enormous privilege to serve as Secretary of State. Wherever I travel, uh, people want to meet the American Secretary of State. They don't want to meet Mike. They want to meet the American Secretary of State because they understand that when we show up, America will show up as a force for good. We may disagree. We may have a of how to get there tactically, but but they understand that America is not out there solely with some mission to conquer or solely with some mission to uh, create a uh, win-lose proposition for them. We're, We're there to to certainly present America's value set and to get good outcomes for our citizens. My first task, the president's uh, primary mission. Um, But they know we bring with us uh, the capacity for reason and thoughtfulness and process and lawfulness. All the core values of Western democracies are very much embodied in the United States, and there's no one that can replace us in the world with respect to each of those issues.
1: Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time. Thank you, you, my best to your family. Thank you. Bless you, too. Have a good day. Thanks. That concludes our discussion with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. After a quick break, I'll be back with some final thoughts. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So, as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. To me, Secretary Pompeo made important points about three key issues. First was ISIS, second was Iran, and the third was North Korea. The reason I asked the Secretary about ISIS is there is a narrative that because the caliphate has been destroyed, that ISIS is no longer a threat. And I certainly don't believe that, and I wanted to ask the secretary what he thought about that. Now, the destruction of the caliphate was an important and significant success, but what does this tell us about ISIS's capabilities post-caliphate? Yeah.
2: Well, again, we don't know exactly the connection to ISIS, um, but it is fair to say, even even apart from the Sri Lanka incident, uh, it's absolutely the case uh, that the capacity for uh, ISIS and other uh, radical Islamic terror groups, Sunni terror groups,
1: uh, remains. What struck me in his answer was that he, too, sees this as a long-term threat. He called it enduring, which I think is exactly right, and I think it was an important thing for him to say. This challenge, this challenge
2: of taking down these networks uh, is something the United States is going to have to continue to stay right on top
1: of. For for a long time? For a long time. For decades, generations. There's two reasons why ISIS is still a threat. One is, while the caliphate existed, the ideology basically spread from West Africa all the way to Southeast Asia. And so you had people taking on the ideology and taking on the name of ISIS, and they were not affected by the destruction of the caliphate, number one. And number two is ISIS central in Iraq and Syria did not go away. It doesn't own territory, but it's still operating. It's just operating underground and is still having influence on people all over the world. So it's what happened before the destruction, and it's what's continuing to happen post-destruction. And it's the reason why ISIS poses a threat that we just saw play out in a place like Sri Lanka.
0: You know, you kept hearing it was 90 percent, 92 percent,
1: the caliphate in Syria. Now it's 100% we just took over, 100%
0: caliphate. That means the area of the land, we just have 100%, so that's good. It
1: surprised me a little bit that the secretary was so forthcoming on ISIS being a long-term threat, because the president has repeatedly said ISIS has been defeated. And so I think it was an important correction to the public narrative that often comes out of the White House. So when you look at President Trump's strategy in the Middle East,
2: it is. How do you reduce terror risk? Uh, who are the folks with the resources and money? And it turns out as you uh, you peel back, uh, you peel back the challenge today in Lebanon from Hezbollah, you peel back the challenge in Yemen from the Houthis, you look at the risk that Iraq won't be able to stand up and have an independent, sovereign nation. Uh, those often emanate from the Islamic Republic of Iran. So that's how we arrive at Iran as a central pillar of our Middle East efforts.
1: I wanted to ask about Iran and I wanted to talk about Iran at some length because it is one of the central focuses of this administration. He made very clear what I believe, which is that Iran is a threat to the region. Iran is responsible for a good chunk of the instability, not all of it, but a good chunk of the instability that exists in the Middle East and that we need to do something about that. What I found particularly interesting is that he said very clearly that he does not believe that the current regime is capable of changing, that he sees the only way for Iran to change its policy for the current leadership to go away. That sounds to me like regime change rather than a policy of trying to force the current regime to the negotiating table to change. And that doesn't mean regime change by military means. It doesn't mean regime change by covert action means, but it means that the only way he believes that they're fundamentally gonna change is for the Iranian people to say, we've had enough of this government and we want a new approach. And that our sanctions and our pressure on Iran are to create the conditions that allow the Iranian people to do that. So when I was at the agency, it was the Quds Force, right? Part of the, uh, the IRGC that was the organization that committed terrorism. What was the logic of designating the whole group?
2: So it's still true. It is the Quds force that is their expeditionary force, the r- truly, driving, uh, truly driving the terror element of the Islamic Republic of Iran's campaign around the world, underwriting Hezbollah, working with the Houthis in Yemen. It is the Quds force that is most central to that.
1: I asked him about the IRGC designation because it's clear from the media that there were some individuals in the intelligence community who were uncomfortable with it. Because the IRGC as a whole does not conduct terrorism operations. It's really only the Kudz Force that does that. And I found his answer interesting. He said nothing had changed. He said that it was only the Kudz Force, but that the Kudz Force is part of the IRGC. The Kudz Force gets money from the IRGC. And even more importantly, the designation gives the administration leverage to put additional economic pressure on the Kudz Force specifically and on the Iranian economy more generally. It gives the administration leverage to put additional pressure on because the IRGC is so involved in the Iranian economy. It's involved in probably 20% of the Iranian economy. And many of those funds flow back into the IRGC and ultimately to the Quds Force. So I thought he did a very good job of explaining why they designated it hopefully in a way that satisfied some of those people in the intelligence community who say the IRGC is, as a whole is not involved in terrorism. I thought he did a good job answering that.
2: So we've been down this road a number of times with the North Koreans throughout history. You've been involved yeah. in some of them. Uh, we handed them a bunch of money in exchange for too little, and we're determined not to make that mistake. I think the North Koreans now see that pretty clearly. Uh, we've had discussions. What happened in Hanoi was was a information-gathering exercise
1: for each of us. I wanted to talk to him about North Korea because it is the most imminent strategic threat to the United States. The threat that those nuclear weapons and those ICBMs pose to us has not changed at all since the summit in Singapore. So where we go with the North Koreans was something that was extraordinarily important to talk to the secretary about. What I found interesting in his answer was that despite what we all saw as a failure at Hanoi, that he said was more nuanced, and that he believes that if the discussions can continue, he still sees a path towards a deal that would bring about full denuclearization. But I think it was even more important that he admitted that that path is not going to be short, that it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be smooth, it's going to be bumpy. And I thought it was interesting that he said... The president has patience on this. The president doesn't have a time clock running. The president wants to give this as much time as possible. And I think that's right because we're not going to be able to get to a deal with North Korea until we build trust. It is very difficult to overstate how much distrust the North Koreans have in us. We clearly don't trust them, but their lack of trust in us is many, many, many times more significant than our lack of trust in them.
2: There are lots of elements of this. There, there, there are many pieces. It's, a, it's an enormous challenge for that country to make its shift, too. It has for an awfully long time told its people that those nuclear weapons were the thing that kept them secure. They, they now need to shift to the narrative, which is those are the things that put them at risk. Those are the things that cause the challenges for the country. So there's not just a military strategic decision, but a political strategic decision. Uh, that we think Chairman Kim is prepared to make.
1: One of the things I want to make sure our listeners know is that we taped this a week ago. We may now have more information on the attack in Sri Lanka than we had when the secretary spoke. We may have more information about Vladimir Putin's meeting with Kim Jong-un than when the secretary spoke. So people just need to keep that in mind as they listen. We have to have partners, we have to have friends, we have to have allies. Uh, We certainly see this uh,
2: on the intelligence side. Uh, We use uh, really capable partners and share intelligence to get good real-time information and then for the actual effort, the disruption of the networks uh, as you well know we have partners all around the world uh, doing this. It's one of the things that you stare at in Sri Lanka and say wholly apart from intelligence failures that may or may not have taken place yeah. did, how, did, how, did, how, how was the network not good enough, the information sharing network not good enough there in Colombo and the surrounding regions uh, to identify the threat in a timely fashion to allow interdiction.
1: I thought the secretary offered a perspective on U.S. foreign policy that you often don't hear from senior administration officials. I thought he talked about American foreign policy in a way that was quite consistent with the last 70 years. He talked about the importance of allies. He repeatedly talked about that in the context of of fighting terrorists in the context of dealing with the rise of China. He talked about the importance of spreading American values across the world. He talked about the importance of spreading democracy and that we were the only country capable of doing that. So it really struck me that he was not in a fundamentally different place than the secretary of states that we've had since World War II. He did not, in a full-throated way, defend an America-first foreign policy. It was much more a foreign policy of we are the only ones who can make a difference in the world and that making the world a better place actually makes the world a safer place for us. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.